Well, good morning, everyone. I uh, hope you're doing uh, well today. It's hot, in case you didn't notice. So um, I guess it will be very hot today. So I hope you uh, like the heat, I guess. If you don't, sorry, it's going to be a rough one. But um, summer is, is officially here. And so we are in this series, and we're studying the, these, the names of God. And we've We've gone over several of the names. If you uh, have missed some of those series, sermons, or you want to hear them, you can go to our website, or you can go to divineocasey.com, or you can look us up on, on Apple Podcasts and get caught up on the sermons. But we've been exploring the names that God has revealed through the Bible and some of the names that people have, have given him in the Bible. And so this week, we're going to be looking at the name El Shaddai, which is a name that God gives in Genesis chapter 17. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at kind of three little vignettes or stories of, of people. We're going to look at Abraham, we're going to look at, at Naomi in the book of Ruth, and then we're going to look at Job and uh, see how these different people responded when they were confronted with the reality of El Shaddai. And then we're going to finally end up with Psalm 91, which is where the song that we just came, the just song, just sung, comes from. There we go. Get all the words together. So we will end up there today if I can actually speak and uh, make this thing make sense. So... Um, but in this study of the names of God, we're discovering really aspects of his character or attributes. An attribute is something that is true about God. And um, last week, who, what did we get last week? I totally lost my train of thought now. Last week was Adonai, I remember? Yes, thanks. Solid team effort up here. So last week was Adonai, where we're looking really at the, the, the lordship of God, that we are to, supposed to surrender to him. And this week, this concept of El Shaddai is almighty. And how are we supposed to respond when we are confronted with who God truly is? So before we dive into some of the, uh, of the text that we're going to look at today, let's pray and get our hearts ready to engage with the Word of God. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we're grateful that not one name can contain you, that we have all these different ways to understand who you are. We look and we start this series, Lord, with, with Yahweh, this great foundational concept that you are outside of space and time. I am that I am. And as we come to El Shaddai today, O oh Lord, we just come to worship you, who is true and who is holy and who is mighty. We are so frail, Lord, and we just need your help constantly. And so we come to you this morning to ask for your help. Help us to understand more of who you are. Help us to respond in a way that glorifies you and that grows us into the people that you want us to be. As we do every week, I want you to just take a moment and pray for yourself. Ask that the Lord would teach you whatever he wants to teach you this morning, that he would prepare your heart and your mind to listen, to receive, and to respond. And as we pray all the time, we want you to be praying for other people, someone you just met, someone you've been married to for 30 years. Pray for someone near you and ask that the Lord would teach them, that he would prepare their heart and their mind to listen, to receive, and to respond to him today. Lord, we thank you for your great grace. We thank you for the, the word that you've given us. Help us to listen as you teach us today. 
Help us to respond appropriately to you as Almighty God. In the risen name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, so in Genesis chapter 17, we have Abraham. So up until this point in the book of Genesis, Abraham's name was actually Abram. And his name gets changed here in chapter 17. This is uh, one of the, maybe not the most important chapter in Genesis, but it's up there. It's one of the most important chapters in the Bible. And we're going to explain briefly why. We're not going to dig into all the theology in this chapter. We're mainly going to look at how Abraham is, uh, encounters God Almighty and how he responds to him. And then, like I said, we're going to jump to uh, briefly into the book of Ruth and then into the book of Job to see how those other folks responded when they were confronted with God Almighty. So a little bit of the context here. Remember that in chapter 12, God calls Abraham out, and in chapter 15, he gives this covenant with Abraham, and Abraham believed on God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And then in chapter 16, things kind of fall apart, and we have this situation, which we will get into when we discuss uh, another name of God in chapter 16, and we have Hagar and Ishmael. Rolling right off of that real, honestly, uh, what was a tragedy in, in uh, 1615, it says, so Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave him the name Ishmael to the son she had born. And Abraham was, or Abram, excuse me, was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael. So he's 86. And then the next chapter says this, 17.1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him. And he said, this is 13 years later. And he said, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai. So what does the name mean? Uh, really smart people who do Hebrew and study things, they don't know what the root of the word is necessarily. I think it might mean uh, God of mountain or some uh, association with mountain, but they almost all translate it uh, God Almighty. And it's this idea of his, he is uh, powerful and he is sovereign. But he says, I am God Almighty. It's the name that he is giving himself as he's talking to Abraham. And he says, I will confirm my covenant between me and you, and will greatly increase your numbers. So he looks to him and he says, or excuse me, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. Very important. I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. So he comes up to Abraham, appears to him, says, I am El Shaddai, and then he tells him, walk before me and be blameless. Notice this is not a conversation, like, hey, if you would appreciate it, like, fill in this thing. No, walk before me and be blameless. And then I will confirm my covenant between me and you, and will greatly increase your numbers. And Abraham responds, Abraham fell face down. And God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you, the whole land of Canaan, where you are now an alien, I will give you as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. So this is a covenant, remember, that God is making with Abraham. Oftentimes in a covenant, like in the law of Moses, there's this agreement. God says, okay, this is the law. They say, we will obey it, and if we obey it, we'll get these blessings. If we don't, there'll be these cursings. Or curses, whatever. But there's this agreement, kind of this bilateral agreement, really, between God and the nation of Israel. In this, it is God saying to Abraham, I will do this. He will uphold the covenant. Uh, you will be the father of many nations. Remember how old Abraham is? He's 99. Okay? And his wife is not young anymore. 
So Sarah can't have a baby until something happens. And she does have a baby. His name is Isaac. But they'd already been promised this baby years before. They walked by sight and not by faith. And the result was Ishmael. And now we have God appearing to Abraham 13 years after this great error, saying, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. So he enters into Abraham's folly, really. He enters into the reality of his life, which is a mixture of failure and success, just like yours and mine. He enters 13 years after a a, a grave error of Abraham's. And he says, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. And remember, Abraham's response is to do what? He fell face down. So Abraham's response to God Almighty, telling him what to do, is absolute humility. He falls on his face. So one of the the responses that we can have when we encounter Almighty God is to simply fall on our face. Not to put up excuses, not to uh, ask lots of questions. Abraham literally falls on his face and then listens. It's incredible. Now we're going to jump ahead to the book of Ruth to briefly look at sweet Naomi. If you're familiar with the book of Ruth, it comes... Really, during the time of the judges, it's an awful, awful period. And yet, Ruth is this beautiful, bright, shining gem in the Old Testament. And you have Naomi, who is Ruth's Ruth's mother-in-law. And she is uh, an Israelite who marries this man named Elimelech. And they go to the uh, country of Moab, which is not where they were supposed to be, but that's where they were. And um, they have a whole bunch of trouble. Elimelech dies, and... Naomi's husband is gone, but she had two sons, and they had married Moabite women. One of them was Ruth. Then her son-in-laws die, and it's just her and her daughters-in-law. Well, they basically limp back to home because they find out that there's some food there that they can eat, and they are in desperate, desperate times. So in verse 20 of chapter 1, and let's start at 19. It says, so the two women, there's this... I encourage you to go back and read the book of Ruth, but it's just Ruth and Naomi at this time. Her, uh, the, the other girl, uh, Orpah, goes home. And in verse 19, it says, So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem, where they arrived in Bethlehem. The whole town was stirred, and they said, Can this be Naomi? So Naomi has come home, and she says, Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitter or bitterness. Naomi means pleasant. It says, uh, Don't call me pleasant or Naomi. Call me bitterness. Why? Because the Almighty, El Shaddai, because El Shaddai has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord, Yahweh, has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? Why call me pleasant? The Lord, Yahweh, has afflicted me. The Almighty, El Shaddai, has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi experiences deep and terrible misfortune. She is in a terrible pickle. And she's coming back home. Her life is devastated in absolute shambles. And of course, in the story of Ruth, we see God redeem all of this and bring out of those shambles the line of David and eventually the line of Jesus, the Messiah. But in Naomi's situation, she is responding to a confrontation with the Lord Almighty with bitterness. She even says, you know what? I'm going to change my name to bitter. My name will no longer be pleasant. My name is now going to be bitter. Because the Lord Almighty has made my life very bitter. One of the ways that we can respond when we're confronted with Almighty God 
the God who has all power and all might and all sovereignty and all authority, is to become very bitter. Instead of bowing on our face, it's to just get mad at him. Why have you done this? Why have you allowed my life to fall apart? Look at all that you have done. She doesn't say that life caused this or sin. She says, El Shaddai has made my life bitter. It's a natural response. Let's be honest. We, all of us either struggle with bitterness or we know someone who's been just overwhelmed with bitterness. And it's where we have a resentment. This did not turn out. The, I am disappointed. I'm disillusioned. I had this expectation and my expectation was not met. I responded with disappointment. That is, the disappointment has gone into despair, resentment, and bitterness. And I'm now in this bitter swamp of resentment. And that's my heart toward God. Has your heart ever been bitter towards the Lord? You're in good company. Because Naomi is a pretty important character in the Bible. And yet the Lord redeems her story through his grace and through his sovereign provision for her. And she ends up with babies, with grandbabies, and a life and a heart that is full. But she starts off bitter. And that's one way that we can respond to Almighty God. Next, we're going to go into the book of Job. If you've never read Job, Job kind of gets a bad rap. I mean, he starts off, uh, starts off great. He is righteous through the whole book. And then trouble comes. And really, trouble comes because he's righteous. Because of his righteousness, trouble comes upon him, and he is tested. And all the things that the world looked at that made Job great, the Lord takes away. And Job ends up on, an, on a pile of ashes, scraping the boils on his skin with a broken pot. That's where Job is. And then his friends come in and ask way too many questions, and you get like 34 chapters of it. And then you end up in chapter 38. And no other book of the Bible has the name El Shaddai more than Job. 31 times the name El Shaddai occurs in this book. And so it says in verse 30, we're going to skip around kind of verse 38 and in 40 and 42. This is another way we can see how Job responds. It says, then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. And he said, who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you will answer me. And then he says, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? And on what were its footings set? Who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb, when I made the clouds and garment and wrapped in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it, set doors and bars in place, when I said, this you may come and no further, this is where your proud waves halt. And it goes through this whole chapter like that. God saying to Job, excuse me, who do you think you are? And then he goes, and we're going to pick it up in, uh, in verse 40, chapter 40, excuse me. This is uh, chapter 40, verse 1. I encourage you, I, I, when I'm feeling uh, like I've got my big boy pants on or like I'm feeling too big for my britches, I read Job 38. And then I just keep reading, and by the time I get to the end, I no longer feel too big for my britches. And so we'll see what happens to Job, and hopefully it's a response that, that you have as well as we read it. So this is uh, Job 40, verse 1. The Lord, Yahweh, said to Job, 
will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? You see what he's saying? Will you who is fighting against me correct me? I am El Shaddai. He says, will the one who contends with El Shaddai correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. Imagine the silence after that statement. Let you who accuses God answer him. Go ahead, Job. Then Job answered the Lord. I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. Then the Lord spoke to Job again out of the storm and said, Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you will answer me. Then he said, Will you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Huh. I mean, poor Job. I mean, he's like, when he says, brace yourself like a man and I will question you and you will answer, he is being confronted with El Shaddai, the Almighty God. And once again, he has this whole, all the way through the end of the chapter and all the way through chapter 41, he's basically telling Job, going through creation, saying, and who are you who ordered creation again? Explain that to me. So in 42, we have this, this is 42.1. So then Job replies to the Lord, and he says this, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that counsels or obscures or darkens my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me now. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you will answer me. My ears have heard you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job's response to God is utter and absolute surrender. There's no more fight left in him. Abraham's response was humility, absolute humility, face down before the Lord. Naomi's response to the work of God Almighty in her life was bitterness. Job's response after, let's just be honest, a whole lot of trauma is utter surrender to the authority and the sovereignty of Almighty God. So some of the things we can learn about these interactions and learn about God is uh, as we look at him as El Shaddai is, is one. So I, I want to look at some of the characteristics of God or some of the attributes that we see from him in this. And the first one is this. When we encounter God Almighty, he does not ask permission. He was not asking Abraham, hey, would you please walk before me and be blameless? That would be great. I'd appreciate it if you would do that by Tuesday. No, walk before me and be blameless. When he comes up to Job, he's not saying, I'm going to ask you, and if you'd feel like it, like if you're, if you're good today, if that's good for you, this is comfortable, this is in your comfort zone, I want you to respond back. There was, no, there was no asking. He's telling Job what's happening. In the Great Commission, where Jesus says, all authority on heaven and earth, and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teach them all that I have commanded you. Jesus is not asking for our opinion. He's not saying, hey, fill out this survey if you'd like to go to the ends of the earth making disciples. He says, no, all authority that exists is mine. I'm El Shaddai, therefore, go. 
And as you go, make disciples. There's a quote, of course, I always have a Tozer quote because he just writes really good books. But talking about Almighty God, about the reality that God does not ask permission, he says this, For to discuss the authority of Almighty God seems a bit meaningless, and to question it would be absurd. He's writing this book in like 1950, by the way. If you think that the church was perfect back in 1950, if you're like, oh, that was like the apex of, Christian, of Christendom, uh, Tozer had a very different view of the church back in 1950 than you and I do looking back. He was very angry at how soft and fluffy the church had become, that we had lost our knowledge of the holy, which is, of course, the title of the book, a book which I always encourage you to read. Start over. Sorry. Even to discuss the authority of God Almighty seems a bit meaningless, and to question it would be absurd. Can we imagine the Lord of hosts having to request permission of anyone or to apply for anything to a higher body? To whom would God go for permission? Who is higher than the highest? Who is mightier than the Almighty? Whose position antedates that of the eternal? And, and to whose throne would God kneel? Where is the greater one to whom he must appeal? Thus said the Lord King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and besides me there is no God. We have put God in this sort of, he's my buddy, and he is. He calls us his friend. It's the great paradox of the believer. But he is almighty. He does not ask our permission. He does not need to ask you if you want to do something. He can just tell you to do it. And then you can choose how to respond. You can respond by humility. You can respond with bitterness. And you can respond with absolute surrender. Only two of those things end well. The bitterness doesn't get you anywhere. Just ask yourself, ask anyone who just holds on to bitterness. Who, I, don't know, I don't know who said it, but I said like bitterness is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. Like I look, I, I hate this person, I'm bitter at them. I'm gonna drink poison and stare at them until they die. It's the dumbest thing ever, but we do it all the time. Bitterness with God is like drinking poison and waiting for God to die. He's not gonna die. You will, but he won't. God does not ask permission. Second, he is needless. Because he is almighty, he possesses all power, he possesses all the authority and the power and the sovereignty that exists in all of creation, he has no needs. What that means is that you and I can go to him knowing that he will not manipulate us. We manipulate each other because I have a need. I need you to fulfill my, fill my bucket. I need you to say you love me. I need you to say I did a good job, whatever. Or I, we... Manipulation is all based on need. God does not manipulate because he has no needs. If he had a need, whatever that need would be, whoever could fulfill that need, they would be God. But he has no needs. He is needless. And because of that, he can truly love us selflessly. He can love us to the uttermost with this beautiful agape love, this love that dies for those it loves who does always what is best for those it loves, never manipulates, is utterly needless, and we can rest in his character as a God who has no needs. Like, he does not need me to walk in obedience to him. He did not look to Abraham and be like, hey, buddy, I really need you to do this. I need you to walk with me and be blameless. I need you to do this for me or else something bad's gonna happen to me. It's ridiculous. What Abraham does or what I do or what Moses or Naomi or anybody does doesn't affect God's greatness at all. 
He has no needs. Because of that, he can love us in a way that no one else can. Third, he can tell us what to do. I've already looked, talked about this a little bit with Jesus in the Great Commission. God has the right to tell you what to do. Before I had kids, I, I thought when I was studying psychology and I was thinking, you said all these things, and they're like, oh, I would never tell my kid because I said so. That's not a viable response from a parent to a child because they should, in all this stuff, right? Uh, it's an entirely reasonable and perfectly justifiable response from a parent to a child. Why do you have to pick up your socks? Because I told you to. Why? Because I'm your dad. Because Almighty God has given me authority as your father to tell you to pick up your socks. Now do it, please. Thank you. I don't have to give a reason. We can discuss it later. This is great. If this, if my child is supposed to do what I say simply because I'm their dad, and they are, it's literally the foundation of our entire society. I'm not going to go off on some giant, giant family thing or whatever. But it is. If that thing breaks down, everything else breaks down. Parents are supposed to have authority in the home. It came from God, and it goes to the kids so that the kids learn, oh, there's someone over me who has authority. That's going to be really useful when they encounter God Almighty. And they've, if they've never submitted to somebody, they're going to have a really hard time if the first time they ever submit to anything is God himself. You're going to get shattered. But if they've practiced submission to loving, godly parents, then when they meet a loving, wonderful, saving God, they'll be like, oh, this, this feels normal. Because God can tell us what to do. He can tell me and my family to pick up and move to Tibet. He can tell our family to pick up and move across the street. He, he can tell us what to do, and he does. Do you know that? He tells us what to do in the Bible. Jesus tells us, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He tells us to do it. Are we doing it? He tells us to love our neighbor as ourself. Do we do it? He tells husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. Do we do it? He tells children, children obey our parents. Do they do it? He tells us to submit to our bosses. He tells us to pay taxes. Do we do it? God can tell us what to do. We can argue with him, but it's dumb. We're just going to end up just shooting ourselves in the foot. And then we just limp. And then we have to limp to the Lord. <laughs> and he's like, you shot yourself in the foot again. And I'm like, yes, Lord, I did. And he's like, come here. I am close to the brokenhearted. I'm also close to the stupid. <laughs> Let me hold you and heal you and remind you who I am. And then once your foot is better, I want you to walk with me and be blameless, okay? He can tell us what to do. The fourth thing about God being God Almighty is that he's able it does no good to have an all-powerful God who can't do anything. God, I don't need a God who can say lots of things. I need a God who can do something. If God had just said, I was going to redeem you, I'll do it, I've got a plan, but never send Jesus, we're all hosed. We have no hope. We're dead in our sins. But he did. He sent Jesus to save us. He promised Adam and Eve that I would send someone. He promises Abraham, I'm going to redeem and we see in the book of Romans that the fulfillment of that redemption is Jesus. And that what we're actually holding on to is the promise that God is faithful to redeem all those who call upon his name. He's able to do it. And for some reason, we forget that he can actually do things that he says he's going to do. When he says, I will take care of you, when he says, I will love you, when he says, I forgive you for your sin, we sort of look at him and say, mm, maybe not. 
when we fail to see God Almighty as who he truly is, we start to make up an image of who we think God is. And that's not the God that we worship. We can, I guess, but it does you zero good. We need to worship the God of the Bible who says, I am almighty. And when we do that, when we come to the Lord and we respond to him with humility and surrender, things change. Our perspective changes. So um, when trouble happens, and trouble happens all the time, just to give you a, a, you know, like a community service alert, trouble's coming. So if you're not in trouble now, trouble's coming, or trouble's coming in the past and it's coming again, there's trouble in life. Um, people get sick, things break, people die, um, people run over your cones out front, it happens. So it's life. When trouble happens, we have a choice as believers. When the unbeliever has trouble, they also can run to the Lord and be saved and have a new life in him. But unless they're willing to turn to God and be saved, they're not going to get help because they stand condemned already. So if you're hearing me today and you've never turned your life over to the Lord Jesus, I'm telling you, he loves you. He is almighty and he is able to save. And he did. He died on the cross for your sins and mine and he rose from the dead, defeating death. And he says that whoever believes on his name will be saved that everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. If you've ever been convicted of your sin and think, I need to be saved before a holy God, but I don't know what to do, you just talk to him. You say, Lord God, I, I know that I need you. I don't know all these things. I have lots of questions, but I know that, that this guy said that you said that you love me and that you died for my sins. I believe that. I believe that you rose from the dead, and I put my trust in you to save me. Everything changes from that moment. For the believer, we have access to El Shaddai. Do you understand that? And so when we're confronted with trouble, El Shaddai is right there with us. Not just with us. He says he indwells us by the Holy Spirit. It's mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. So all I have to do is confront my trouble with the Almighty and in a way of absolute humility and surrender. And when that happens, my whole perspective changes. All of a sudden, troubles become an opportunity to demonstrate grace, to show my faithfulness to the Lord. All of a sudden, trouble becomes an opportunity. All of a sudden, conflict becomes an opportunity to show grace to another person, to walk in the Spirit in the midst of trouble. It's incredible. But when we respond in bitterness and look at the Lord and blame Him for everything else, things don't go super well. So let's end here by going to Psalm 91 and looking at these first two verses. So Psalm 91 is written, I think maybe by Moses, I'm not sure. 90 was written by Moses, but Psalm 91 says this in verses 1 and 2. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High, that's El Elyon, that's another name for God that we're not really going to study, but he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty, El Shaddai. And I will say of the Lord, Yahweh, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. So the psalmist says, he who dwells in the shelter of El Elyon, Most High, will rest in the shadow of El Shaddai, Almighty, God Almighty. And I will say of Yahweh, he is my refuge, he is my fortress, my God, Elohim, in whom I trust. He has four names of God right there in two verses. It's incredible. So what happens when we encounter God in the midst of trouble? Um, 
So as many of you know, Monday, this past Monday was, uh, I don't know what anniversary, but it was the end of the, June 6th is the anniversary of the D-Day invasion, right? So if you're not good on your history or you don't remember or whatever, um, go watch Saving Private Ryan. It'll explain it all. It's also that first 25 minutes. is pretty gory, so hold on. But that's about the D-Day invasion was the Allied invasion of Normandy to help uh, free Europe from the Nazis. It was the largest invasion force that had ever been assembled. And on that day, like 156,000 plus boys hit the beach to make a beachhead so that the other, like, I don't even know, like half a million soldiers and equipment and untold numbers of guys could get into Europe and start to liberate it from the evil that Hitler had brought on, on it. I, uh, I told you guys that I had a chance to go to uh, Europe when I was in college. I spent my student loan. I don't recommend that. But you, I went and I, I took with my Uncle Jay the same trip I talked about with uh, Thicket Tickets. He... And I went to the 55th anniversary of the D-Day invasion. As I were walking, I had this little travel Bible that I had with me. Not this one, the little bitty one. And I was reading through Psalms. And, and the day of this Psalm on that invasion was Psalm 91 that I read. And in verse 10, it says, or 7, excuse me, it says, A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right side, but it will not come near you. There were boys on the boats who were calling out to El Shaddai that day. Some of them... Many of them went home. They were shot, they were drowned, they were blown up. But there were many of them who put their trust in the Lord God Almighty. They did not need the God of, of, uh, of happiness and rainbows. They did not need the unicorn fake God flying through the sky. They did not need the God who gives me permission to do whatever I wanted. They needed Almighty God to watch out for them. And so they called out to him, and it says, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High. Do you know what it means to be under a shelter? It means you dwell to make your home where? Why do you need shelter? Because things are falling on you. Like when it's hailing here in Oklahoma, you don't stand out and gasp at the wonder of God's magnificence. And you can, but you're going to get knocked out. So I suggest you get under a shelter. When the storm comes, we seek shelter. Where is it that the believer goes for shelter? The Most High God. And this says, I will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. The picture here that we get, if we, if we keep reading down, is this, uh, like in verse 4, it says, He will cover you with His feathers, and under His wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. This, it's this picture of a mother hen with her wings over her chicks, protecting them from the elements, protecting them from invaders, protect, invaders attackers, other animals, things that will leave their babies protecting her chicks. And what is this person doing under the shadow of the wings of Almighty God? Resting. Resting. Where is it that your rest comes from? It's supposed to come from being under the shadow of Almighty God's protection. And it's there that you can find true rest. I mean, all H-E double hockey sticks can be breaking loose around us. And you can be under the shadow of the wings of the Almighty, and you can rest there. It's like Jesus asleep in the boat in the storm. The waves are crashing, the disciples are freaking out, and Jesus is literally asleep. He's just resting in his Father's care. So we can dwell in the shelter of him. We can rest in the shadow of the Almighty. And then he finally says this, I will say of the Lord Yahweh, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God, in whom I trust. Oswald Chambers said, 
There is no conceivable situation in which it is not safe to trust God. Say that again. There is no conceivable situation in which it is not safe to trust God. That's a lot to take in. You're like, well, surely there's a... No. Why? Because God is almighty. Because he is almighty, we can trust in him. Does that mean things will go swimmingly? No. It means that God will take care of you. Job suffered mightily. Jesus suffered mightily. Paul suffered. Name me a hero in the Bible that didn't suffer. There isn't one. Why? Because suffering is part of a fallen world. We've been brainwashed into this concept that my faithfulness must be rewarded with ease. That's not in the Bible. The Bible is that faithfulness is actually rewarded with difficulty. Because difficulty brings about perseverance and proven character and the things that grow us into a mature believer. If you look at a mature believer, ask them if they've ever suffered trouble. And they will probably laugh, this knowing, gentle laugh, and say, of course I did. How do you think I got to be where I'm at? So when we run into trouble, I want to encourage you, because you're either in it now or it's coming for you soon, I want you to surrender humbly and absolutely to the almighty God of the Bible, to dwell in him, to rest in him, and to trust him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your great mercy and kindness, and thank you for the great gift we have, Lord, of communion that we get to share in this celebration of your taking care of us, this celebration of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we come to you to ask for your help today as we share in this meal, as we share in this ordinance, as we want to walk in obedience to you, who tells us to do this. And so we come to you in obedience to do it. Help us to surrender to you, almighty God, as we celebrate this beautiful act of communion. In Christ's name we pray. The Lord said on the night of his death, and he sat the disciples down, and he told them, this is my body, broken for you. It was a picture of the body that would be broken on the cross. And then he took the wine, and in the same way, he poured it, and he said to them, this is the new covenant poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. This cup of grape juice represents the reality that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead for our, our sins and that our sins have been forgiven in him. There's no other sacrifice except for this. This table that we come to worship at today is, a, is it not a denominational table. I don't care if you're a Presbyterian or a Methodist or a... It is, if you profess the name of Jesus as your Savior, come here and take communion. It is also a time for every one of us to come to the Lord and to confess what's been going on in our life. It is a confessional table. It is a time when we can come and I, I encourage you to, to spend a moment as, we, as, we, as the music will begin and as, 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 as uh, some people start to get up. If you have something you need to deal with with the Lord, just take a moment and deal with it with the Lord before you come and take communion. He gives us this wonderful anchor in our weeks, in our months, in our lives, in our years to come to him and to encounter him as almighty God, this picture of an almighty God broken and bleeding so that he could raise from the dead, so that if we put our faith in him, we can be saved. I'm gonna invite our, our servers to come down, and we do have uh, gluten-free options here. And we take 
communion by matter of intinction, which is a fancy way of saying that you take the bread and you're going to dip it in the cup and then you're going to eat it kind of at the same time. And let me uh, pray for us again as we get ready to take communion. Lord Jesus, we love you. We just ask that you would help us to walk in faithfulness to you as our almighty God as we take communion in your name and for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.
great gift of communion for this incredible reminder of who you are, that you are a God who is always faithful, that you will always do what you said that you will do, that when you promised a Redeemer, that you came and did what you said, and that because of your faithfulness that we can truly trust in you. We don't have to shy away or be afraid, but that we can trust that you will do what you said you would do, that when you say you will help us, that you will do that very thing, that when you say that when we need you, we can come to you and find shelter in your wings, we can do that very thing. And so we simply come to you, O oh Lord. We give you thanks for this great time. And I pray that you would help us to respond to you well in worship, O oh Lord, as we sing this final song to you. Help our hearts and our minds respond to you in a way that honors you and encourages us as we go forward in our week. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let the Amen 
Come talk to me. June 26th, we're doing it. If you've got a kid that wants to be baptized, talk to me. We'll talk to them. If you want to go to the Dodgers game, go sign up outside. And if you want to become a member of our church, it's June 26th. Please go sign up outside. And more importantly than anything, you're going to have trouble this week. You can find shadow and shelter and rest if you will dwell under the shadow, uh, to the shady, the shadow of the Almighty God. El Shaddai has invited you to come and seek shelter under him. Run to it and find the rest that he has promised you. And go in peace.